Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome back to Viewpoints, Dr. Michael Carr-Gregg, one of Australia's highest-profile psychologists, author of 14 books, broadcaster, and a specialist in corporate mental health, families, parenting, children, adolescents, and the use of technology for mental health. Um, Michael was uh, in the papers very recently, back-to-school anxiety. Students go absent rather than face stress of the classroom. Uh, but firstly, welcome. Welcome again to Viewpoints, um, Dr. Michael Carr-Gregg. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure and uh, goes without saying, Michael, that certainly in, in our field of education, we're deeply indebted to the, the great work you've done for, for many years uh, for families and children, which impacts very positively on, on our role as educators in our schools. Thank you very much. The article, Back to School Anxiety. Now, you've been around the traps for quite a few years and um, in the article, uh, you've um, rather surprised. I've never seen so many kids who have lost hope. That really scares me. Now, you'd have seen a lot of kids. You might like to build on on that comment that was in that piece. Yeah, look, I think um, as a psychologist resident in Melbourne, um, I have been intimately involved, obviously, in both lockdowns, um, courtesy of the coronavirus. And um, just from a basic psychological point of view, there are four things that kids need to be doing. One is to go to school. Two is to be with their friends. Three is to figure out who they are. And four is to basically have a, a kind of understanding of um, their place in the world vocationally. All four of those things have been put on hold as a result of coronavirus and add to that the fact they've been forced into close contact with their parents at a time when they're supposed to be emancipating. I knew things wouldn't go well, but I didn't think things would be as bad as they are. One in four of the young people that I work with had psychological problems before coronavirus. This stuff has only made it a lot worse. So, so when you say, and some of them are telling you, um, a trend that has developed among young people, my world is stuffed and they're developing a hashtag Y-O-L-O. Um, that, that must be of concern to you and uh, obviously to, to parents and educators, Michael. Well, it appears some of them have lost hope and they're saying to me, well, what's the point of going to school? The global economy is ruined. I'll never realise my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations. So I might as well uh, live fast and die young. And I, I think it's really important that we quickly, as educators, psychologists and carers, develop a, a counter-narrative to that because I can see that really taking on. And we're in uncharted territory here. Do not know uh, what the psychological impact of the worldwide pandemic is on this generation. Uh, we know that some of them took to online learning really well. We know that some endured it and we know some hated it. Um, so we're waiting to see what happens. And uh, I'm nervous. I'm nervous particularly about schoolies and the fact that that's been cancelled, but that the young people are still going to plan and have planned to go to their various um, places, albeit within the state. And there's going to be, I think, problems. I'm predicting problems. 
It's interesting too, um, from from another perspective on that very issue, Michael, that uh, that level of um, defiance, rebelliousness um, in the face of what the adult world is telling them, uh, that's uh, that's a development that uh, would have caught us certainly as, as, as adults and parents and educators a little bit by surprise. Um, are you surprised by that? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm thinking that um, one of the unique characteristics of the teenage brain is an inability to predict the consequences of their actions and the second is a very very advanced sense of social justice and this is a generation that expected to have its independence and its autonomy and that's been certainly in melbourne taken away from them and i don't think they've responded well Uh, i've got um, any number of clients who filmed themselves outside police stations well after the curfew um, hurling, um, you know, uh, obscenities at the police station and uh, at the world generally. Uh, so I think that developmentally, this is understandable. How it'll all pan out, I don't know. And that's what I told the reporter in, in the newspaper. Mm, it's interesting because I um and and well look it's a pandemic none of us have been there before. Back in March and April, you you wrote talking to children about coronavirus COVID nineteen in your breakfast at Epiphany's uh, piece, and then what to say to young people about coronavirus that was back in April. Makes a lot of sense. I'm sitting here as an adult and I'm thinking, well, Michael Cargreg's on the money here. Um, has it fallen on deaf ears or have we forgotten that message or have we been caught up in our own anxieties? Oh, look, I think it, this is a very difficult. I mean, it's very easy to launch into character assassinations of our political leaders, but the truth is there was no roadmap for this. Um, they're human. They made mistakes, some more than others. Um, you had the Ruby Princess up in New South Wales. You had the hotel quarantine here in Victoria. Um, The difficulty we face is that we now have to manage this. Personally, I would have got the young people back to school a lot earlier because I think that they needed structure. I think they needed to be with their friends and they needed to feel the um, uh, empowerment that comes with really sensational teaching. And the only silver lining that I see to this um, whole thing is that way back in March, about 12 million uh, parents across Australia were kind of recruited into the role of um, teacher's aid. And they suddenly realised how incredibly difficult your job is and that of your staff. And I think there was a newfound appreciation um, for the nature and extent of what you guys do. And I think that's good. Uh, but I, I feel that a lot of young people have lost motivation and interest and it's going to be a real, a real priority to get them back into um, the rhythm of learning, I think. Mm. What are the things we could do in schools? Um, I mean, we're coming up now to the tail end of 2020. Uh, some things are back on, on, on the table that we can do. Um, we can have graduation ceremonies of sorts. We can have transition programs of sorts. Um, 
what would be advice to, to, to teachers in the schools as the kids are now coming back into school in these past couple of weeks? Focused on well-being because, as you know, um, if you don't have well-being, you have no learning. So well-being's got to be the priority. Um, but what does well-being mean? It means focusing on diet, sleep, exercise, and, of course, the ubiquitous R word, which is resilience. And um, I think this particular generation and this, um, particularly the year 12s and the year 7s, they've had a particularly disrupted time. And I would be saying to them, we have all modified our expectations. We're not not necessarily um, wanting, you know, stellar academic performances this year. We just need you to do your best. And in order to do your best, you have to care for yourself. And so I would be talking to them about getting enough sleep, eating the right foods, getting enough exercise. And of course, the greatest predictor of well-being is having a rich repertoire of friends, so really investing in those relationships. That's a good point, Michael. We need to take a short break. Can you hold the line? Sure. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack, in the middle of a discussion with Dr. Michael Carr, Greg, one of Australia's highest-profile psychologists. Back-to-school anxiety was a piece that appeared in the papers recently, and we're talking about the, the wash-up in terms of the impact on students uh, uh, and children uh, with uh, Michael. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you. Um, we were just chatting uh, in the break there, Michael, about the term resilience. And uh, I know at times I get frustrated in my role. I'm parent, grandparent, but also school principal. It's a term that seems to mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And it's one that we don't seem to nail down often enough if we look at the outcomes. You might like to help us out there a bit. Yeah, my understanding from it comes from a very... Um uh, important study that was done way back in the, the 50s by a woman called Professor Emmy Werner. And she examined a group of young people on an island called Kauai. And she followed this birth cohort through. Uh, and the reason she focused on these kids is because they grew up in circumstances of pervasive adversity. A lot of drug and alcohol use amongst parents, a lot of unemployment, uh, a lot of mental illness. And what she discovered is two-thirds of the kids crashed and burnt. The apple didn't fall very far from the tree. But interestingly, in her study, a third supervened those circumstances and seemed to do very well. And she looked at the five key characteristics of that group that survived the circumstances into which they were born and found that the resilient ones, that is the ones that had the capacity to face overcome and be transformed by adversity, had a charismatic adult in their life, they had great social skills, they had a reasonably optimistic outlook on life, they had skills that they really enjoyed, what we call islands of competence, and they also had a sense of meaning, purpose and belonging. And those five key characteristics seem to be echoed in virtually every single piece of research since. So to me, it's a no-brainer. If schools can incorporate those five principles, 
and so can families, then we've got a good chance of building resilience in these young people. Good point. Couldn't have said it any better myself if I tried, Michael. Now, I mentioned earlier, I love the, I love the play on words here, um, Breakfast at Epiphanies, um, which is uh, all tied up with an organisation in which you're involved with, and you have been, I think, since 2019, Momentum First. You might like to tell us about the work you're doing in, 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 in that space. Yeah, well, it actually goes back a little bit before then. Um, I was asked by uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers to launch a program that they had in corporate mental health called Green Light to Talk. And um, I was fascinated by the whole idea of uh, the fact that it costs the economy um, $10 billion a year in poor mental health in corporations. And Green Light to Talk was a project in which they sought to get people who had problems within organisations to seek help early. And what they found was that the number of people voluntarily seeking help through employee assistance programs was about three to four percent. Now, we know that in the adult population, 20 percent of people have um, psychological problems. So they were kind of missing at least 16 percent of the people. So what um, PwC did was they asked their senior partners who had had life experience with mental health challenges. They managed to whittle it down to about nine people, all of whom made videos, which then went on the intranet within PwC. And the idea was that these people who bared their soul would then be resources for staff who didn't feel necessarily inclined to go and see their managers or go to the EAP, they could talk to these people who already had had these experiences and these people were trained uh, to send them off in the right direction. And it was massively successful. As a result of that program, um, Momentum First, uh, who is run by Bridget Johnson, an executive coach, and I developed this quick talk, 45-minute talk for staff uh, to get them interested in the whole idea of mental health and the whole idea of early intervention and prompt treatment. And uh, we decided to call it Breakfast at Epiphanies. Epiphany, of course, being a revelation. Yes. So it's a breakfast talk and um, short, sharp and a bit of fun. Mm, and it, it just plays off that wonderful uh, film we all watched many years ago, Breakfast at Tiffany's, a term you use in their about the workforce and mental health, presenteeism. Uh, and that allows too many people to slip under the guard, don't that, of, of, of people in terms of supporting them? Yes, the idea of being at work but not really being at work. So off with your thoughts rather than being productive. And we know that that is a major problem within all organisations, including education. And um, interestingly, education when you look at the mental health problems of um, school staff, we actually find the latest research tells us that they have much higher prevalence levels than the normal population. And again, I wonder how coronavirus has impacted on school staff across Australia, because of course they've had to really pivot and make significant changes. So that'll be again, something that plays out over the next few months, I suspect. Mm, yes, look, uh, being in the hub of it, a couple of points very quickly I can mention. One is the 
move to technology-based teaching and not on-site has been a big issue for uh, quite a few staff. And, and, of course, there's the, there's the conflicted staff, Michael, who, on the one hand, want to be with the kids, but the echoes of danger about COVID-19, and many teachers and principals are older, and they've been... They've been sort of worried and torn. Uh, so, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm sure there's a lot of food for work there for you. What has COVID-19 um, brought to your attention and brought to light in relation to our mental well-being and uh, where we sit in terms of needing to, 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 to address things? Oh, look, I think that it's provided people with an opportunity to uh, think about their life and um, there was a book a few years ago called In Praise of Slow. I don't know if you read it, Henry. I've come across it. it. It basically said that sometimes people needed a major kind of event in their life to press the pause button and reassess their priorities. And I think what COVID-19 did for a lot of people, particularly in lockdown, is it got them to reassess their priorities to spend more time with their family, to recognise that maybe there is little point in sitting in the traffic for an hour and a half every day when you can actually be as productive from home. Uh, and I think it's also given people a better understanding of the utility of the internet. Um, I have done 86 webinars since first lockdown. And that's in lieu of what I normally was doing, which was hopping on a plane and uh, flying all over Australia, New Zealand and Asia to give talks. I've been able to do the same thing um, in my tracksuit bottoms uh, from, <laughs> from home. And uh, I've got to tell you, uh, it, it really is a much better deal in terms of me being able to invest in my exercise regime, not getting up really early to catch a plane. I think this has been really quite significant and I'm hoping that that also can be a positive legacy of this. It's a good point you make, Michael. People have asked me about, uh, as a principal and a person, what it's been for me. And I said, look, one of the things, and it, it echoes uh, some of what you said, I said, I've had to slow down. Now, sure, there's boring things and there's restrictions, but it's actually given me time to think, <laughs> something I actually like doing, and too often it's done in haste. And uh, from that angle, that uh, that slowing down has been of benefit and focusing on it. I guess that just segues into my last question, which is um, COVID nineteen. Uh, what's been the impact on Michael Cart Greg ultimately at the end of the day? I've actually been able to really invest in uh, my well-being. Last year, I'd set myself a goal to run a half a half marathon, Henry, and um, <laughs> I'm happy to tell you that my training for the full marathon for next year is uh, really geared up. So I've been able to really invest in in the training and. Um, that's got to be a positive. I've slept better, I've eaten better, and um, I've really been able to get to know um, my my family very well because I normally wouldn't see them that much. So all round, I've been frantically busy. Um, I, I pivoted to 
internet uh, counselling um, and um, I've found people all over Australia um, want to have a chat, which is, is great. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's actually all around been uh, very positive for me. So I've just made a little, and that's great, Michael, I've just put a little note here that um, uh, when the full marathon comes up, um, we've got to try and get good odds on Michael Carr, Greg being the dark horse who wins it. <laughs> I might come come last, but at least I'll finish, Henry. Absolutely. Michael, as always, it's, it's a great pleasure to chat with you and uh, always, always, always a, a great learning experience. Can I thank you for your time and as always the great work you've been doing, will do, and given your upgrading of your lifestyle, we can look forward to many more years of Michael Carr Gregg's uh, wisdom. I hope so. Thanks very much for having me, Henry. My pleasure. That was uh, Dr. Michael Carr Gregg, one of Australia's leading psychologists, authors and uh, experts in many fields related to mental health. We'll take a short break. Don't go away. Mm -hmm.